morning's passage is Psalm 96. We are continuing in our series. And what, we are, what we've been saying about the Psalms, uh, there's many things that can be said, but one of the things as the central worship hymnal of, of the church, of the ancient church in Israel, under the early church era, what, what the Psalms do is they take ab- abstract truths and they show us lived out examples. We kind of get the nitty gritty of, of life in the Psalms. And one of the things we've also been talking about is that so often where most of us, if we're honest, would have, would have much more desire to go around problems or over them or under them. The, the gospel calls us to go through them, which is what our Savior has done. And we see that like in Psalm 23, right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right, I will fear no evil. So it's this concept throughout the Psalms that it's by looking at what's going on in our lives and bringing those things before the Lord, it's through that process that so often not only the healing but the growth will also come. Now, this psalm is the most positive psalm. So if you're here and you haven't been in the series or you've been wondering, like, when are we going to get to a fun, positive psalm? Psalm 96 uh, is a psalm of praise. Worship, the splint, worship in the splendor of holiness. And it's actually a psalm that almost completely appears in, in 1 Chronicles 16 where David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem for the first time. This psalm was commemorating that experience. And so it's a real bit huge picture uh, of, the, of this kind of new reality that we have as we enter into the era of Christ that we are now made to worship and we can learn from this psalm how to do so. So let's read it. We're going to explore what it looks like to worship uh, both corporately and privately which can be uh, so life-giving. So let's read it together. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let, their er- let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so glorious to hear even these last verses of the longing for creation to sing for joy. Lord, we know that uh, our own hearts long for this this expression of, of worship and praise. Yet, Father, oftentimes we are inhibited by unbelief, by doubt, by other false gods that we have placed before you. 
So Holy Spirit, I pray you would open our eyes that we would see more clearly how if we could see you, we would do these things naturally, that we would long to worship you, that we are made to do so. Lord, I would pray against any work of the enemy that might make this seem boring or uh, mundane. It's the opposite. Father, we have been absolutely um, fooled by the enemy and by so much of our world that sees you as boring when in reality you are everything. Let that come through this discussion. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, One of the first viral videos I remember, there are a couple, but remember the double rainbow guy? Raise your hand if you have any idea what I'm talking about. Okay, maybe younger people don't know, but this is like in 2010, I think the internet was about 10 years old, I don't know. And, and there was this video of a person videoing a rainbow, and he's just tracing it from one end to the other, and he can see the end, and then he realizes oh, it's a double rainbow, and he starts tracing it back, and, he's dub- and he can't even believe it as he's tracing it with his camera, and you can still find this on YouTube. Uh, he's, he j- I don't want to imitate him because it's just awkward. You want me to? No, no, I'm getting a no, no. Uh, he's just like, double, a double rainbow, my goodness, oh my goodness. In fact, it was such an extreme response. People are like, I think he's on drugs. Um, but what, why, why do we, I think, I'm going to just explore this, that went viral. Because all of us know what it would mean to walk out and see a double rainbow. And yet... We're like the teenager. We're like, you know, when your dad says, hey, look at the mountain. You're like, yeah, 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 okay. You know, there's something in us that we can see glory, we can feel it has some, something, something to it, but we have so much inhibiting factors. Like, I don't know if I'm going to say a lot. I don't really know how this changes my status at school. You know, I'm like, so this is not a big deal. And we kind of dumb it down. And then we stumble upon this person on the Internet who rightly, I think we all would agree, if you pass this video on, you're kind of like, that's, that's probably how I should have you know, responded to a double rainbow. I should probably respond to glory like that. And yet I don't. And so I want us to come to this psalm and realize in this psalm, in, in all sorts of places in the scripture, we are getting a glimpse to what our hearts could do and should do if rightly apprehending who God is. If we saw a glimpse of God, even just a snippet, you're like, you would not be the same. And so the question before us is, why are we not worshiping like this? To turn that positively, I'll just say, why, when we study these, uh, like Jonathan Edwards, uh, I remember reading one of his accounts of his closeness to God and getting, understanding the gospel and the beauty of Jesus and he began to just he describe like the blueness of the sky. He's like, it's never been that blue. And it's just this rapturous sense that the, the mon, I'm not, maybe not the mundane, the ordinary parts of creation that we take for granted become more lovely as God becomes more lovely. And so because God created the heavens and the earth and created us to worship, we are most fully who we are designed to be when we are worshiping. So, I don't know if this is the perfect proposition, but the extraordinary nature of worship comes in the ordinariness of our life. We are learning to become ordinary worshipers or of the extraordinary that's all around us. And I think God drives us to do this as we worship him primarily. So, 
couple quick things we're going to process. What's, what are we worshiping when we worship? What are we supposed to worship? What does the psalm teach that we are to worship? And of course, I think we know the answer, but I want to unpack it a little bit. Throughout the psalm, he says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Um, bless his name. So what's happening for the psalmist is he's reorienting himself to the fact that God is what is to be worshipped and who is to be worshipped. But furthermore, it says he's the maker of heaven and earth. He created all things. He has value. Worship and worth are synonyms. Um, we all love, you know, the shows like Antique Roadshow. I didn't bring a, a specific example. There's a million of them. You know, but where a person sort of wonders if something's valuable. And then the expert says, oh, yes, this is worth a million dollars. And then, you know, the fainting moment. Uh, that's what the psalmist is saying. Like, we've walked into this room. We sort of know we have some value in God. We believe that. We have some theology and some experiences. And then we come to this psalm. And what we're being told is, do you know that the God who loves you, who created you, who made you, is worth you know, infinite. He made everything. He's infinitely valuable. And the question for us is, what's keeping us from exploding in that? Um, we're made for worship. The, you know, the famous line by Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We are made for this. I picture a locket. Uh, I've never done this, but I guess little girls will have a locket and they like give half to a friend. Did anyone get a locket? So I'm going to just paint a picture of what I imagine happening in some sort of a fantasy movie. You get a locket and you lose sight of the friend and you know you have this little thing you carry with you and, and ever, if ever things go wrong, someday, one day you want that person to find you. And one day this person shows up and you match the locket and it works and everything is okay. That's the gospel. And that's this, Jesus, is, God is saying, hey, sing a new song. The locket is put back together. Come into the courts. You are redeemed. And this is what you are made for. In John 4, we read a story of a woman who doesn't feel like she's on the inside. She's at the well in the middle of the day, and we know what that means. And Jesus comes to her. And in their conversation in John 4, as they have a little bit of theology, a little bit more amazing things to say, Jesus promises her water that will never dry up. And in this conversation, he says to her, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And hear this next line. For the Father is seeking, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Are you one of those? Are you one of those whom the Father has sought to worship him? What gets in the way? Well, in our passage it says, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. And so our hearts are, Calvin has said, idol factories because our hearts are worship factories. Our hearts are made to worship. And there's a quote from Dostoevsky, however you want to say it. I'm not Russian, but he says, so long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. None of you have a worship problem. Every one of us knows how to worship. We're made for it. We're excellent at it. The question is who are we worshiping?
So rather than coming to this psalm and going, how do I become a better Christian? How do I become a better worshiper? The best thing we're looking at in point one is, how do I make sure what I worship is God? How do I get to this place where I would worship him? And so as we move into that, to answer that, I just want to talk about in point two, the why. The why that we have. Now, I don't think it's wrong to suggest you worship God because he's God. And a lot of debates, a lot of arguments, a lot of people emphasize that. But the psalmist gives us reasons. He gives us all these ways. The God, he says, sing to the Lord a new song, um, tell of his salvation, declare his marvelous works, his glory. As I mentioned, he makes the heavens and the earth. I mean, when you were little, when I was little, it was common to say, my dad can beat up your dad. Anyone ever say that? Like, why would you say that? Like, of course, no dad, I hope none of our dads would do that. But it's, there's something in us that needs to know, like, the one I value is stronger, is more powerful. Right? He made the heavens and the earth. Another example is uh, with art. Um, the more I look at art, I went to the Pre-Day West at the Cowboy Hall of Fame, and one painting's like five grand, and the next one's like 70. And they don't look different. What do you think the difference is? I would love someone, someone just shout an answer. Why would one painting be worth more than the other painting if they look roughly the same? The artist. We want to know the artist. There was a, there's a great Netflix show on a forgery, and, and there's apparently like this auction house in New York that had been doing this for many, many years. And they came across a bunch of like Rothko's and some of the, the New York School of Artists. And they had been purchased in the mid-1900s, and then... They pop back on the scene and wealthy, wealthy people are like, I want one. And, and they're paying full price only to find out it was all forgery. And the whole thing just goes, it's a really fascinating documentary. But how, it's like, it's the same artwork. But everyone in this room would feel duped, wouldn't they? We need to know the artist. I want to know that Rothko painted that orange square. Have you ever seen a Rothko? They're, they're really interesting. But we want to know who the artist is. And so the psalmist is saying, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the artist. He is the one that made you. He is the one who saves you. So why do we worship him? Because he is the only one worthy of worship. And we're made to do so. And so when we engage with him, we are most fully and wonderfully who we are supposed to be. Now I want to draw your attention to the last three verses and then we'll... Um, Make some applications. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Listen to this. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. That's like a C.S. Lewis book. And yet it's the Bible. Creation is made by God and creation longs for God's return. And you know in Romans 8 how the creation groans. And how it waits for, the, son, for the, the children of God, those that are being redeemed, to bring glory. That, that what we have in the picture of the Psalm 96 is we are partnering with the Father in this incredible opportunity to worship him and enjoy his creation. So it's not simply what we're doing on a Sunday morning, though it is, but it's all of our lives that are bringing worship to him. We'll get more to that in, the, in a minute, but I want to just remind us of where this was first uh, used. David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city. Remember, David was, an, was anointed by Samuel, went through a long period of running from Saul, 
Saul finally dies, and the tribes, I don't want to say they elect, but they approve that he's their king. He's now moving things into Jerusalem, into the city of David, and he brings the ark in. And he remember, he uses like a really nice brand new cart, an oxen cart, and it's coming in, and it tips. And this person named Uzzah decides to kind of steady the ark, and he's fried, just gone. And he's, he's like smoking coming from his head. It's so sad. And David's furious. And so David's like, you know what? We're going to just uh, set this thing over at Obed-Edom's house and let him deal with that and move on. I tried this God thing out. It didn't work. But then he finds out Obed-Edom is like flourishing, like having kids and, and, and the fields are growing and things are going well. And he realizes, wait a minute, there might be something more to God than I realize. And that's the question before us is who is your God? Is he just throw him on a cart, wheel him in, just check the boxes? You see, when David went back and studied, and it didn't take a lot. It's like right there pretty clearly in the first few books of the Bible that the ark includes these poles. And that the priests are supposed to be carrying the ark. And God gives an incredible amount of discussion. And by the way, God's saying, I'm not in the thing. I'm above it and I'm beyond it. And, and the ark is so much more valuable but there was something about that moment that woke David up. And so the next time he brings in the ark, he does it a little bit differently. And the point we're, get, we're getting at there is that God is far more powerful and far more glorious than you've ever imagined. And brings far more flourishing than you've ever dreamed of. There's not anything you've dreamed of that God can't outdo and would delight to do so. But he does get to tell us how he wants to be worshipped. There's one more quote I want to just read from John Frame. He says, to worship God contrary to his will is in effect to worship a false god, our own imagination. And I think that's our problem. When worship is boring, yeah, maybe we could pep up the music, we could pep up the sermon a little bit, maybe throw some colors on the wall, or maybe there's something going on in our own heart where we aren't seeing God correctly. So we come to our psalm, and we read, sing to the Lord a new song. So in this last moment, these last few moments of the sermon, I want you to think about how do we engage worship? What would it look like? What is this new song that the psalmist speaks of? What would that look like? How do we grow in this situation. And, and in 1 Corinthians 13, I've, I've talked about recently, it just keeps coming back to my heart and my mind and I commend it to you, is right there in, in, in the, toward the end of Paul's letter to probably, I think, the last church I would want to ever pastor. If you say, hey, we're going to call you to one of the New Testament churches, um, that's not the one, right? It's, they, they, first of all, it opens up with disputes about who they follow and and what they believe, and they seem to be more, um, they seem to be almost telling Paul what, what he should be believing and doing. And, but he, he has patience on them. And, and by the time he gets to chapter 13, he has this, this little paragraph, this little ver, uh, chapter that are used at weddings. I preached it at a wedding recently. Love is patient, love is kind. My concern with taking passages like this and doing that is often as believers, we don't go back into them. Oh, that's that cute passage. But you have to remember, Paul is talking to the most unloving congregation he's ever dealt with. 
And he's like, they all long to speak in tongues, and they long to be prophetic, and they long to do all this amazing stuff. He's like, if you don't have love, you have nothing. And then he describes love, and then he does this amazing thing. He says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave away childish ways. And that segues into verse 12 of chapter 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And Paul is unpacking a mystery for the Corinthians and for you and I. Through love, through understanding Christ, through experiencing him in worship, we will actually see him more clearly. And when we see him more clearly in ourselves, we are going to have much more worship. And it has this kind of fascinating cycle to it. We worship God. We see him clearly. He becomes more clear. We fall more in love. And what do we want to do? Worship him more and more. And it cycles around. And it's expressed in love toward the congregation and toward others. So we come to our passage and we get real practical. How do we do this? Verses 7, 8, and 9, three times say these words, ascribe to the Lord. And I'm just, I mean, I looked it up. I studied that. I mean, we all think we know what that means in English to ascribe. But doesn't that sound interesting? I'm going to ascribe something to God? Who am I to ascribe something? Right? What does it mean? It means I am coming along and finally waking up to the reality of who God is. But in a crazy, mysterious way, he's inviting me to wake up and speak it as if I'd never said it before, as if it had never been true before. So what am I ascribing to him? Glory and strength and honor. Do you ascribe these things to the Lord? You are holy. Do you speak to him? How much of our devotional life is just in our head? How much of our theological and Christian experience is simply going through the motions on autopilot? To ascribe to the Lord is a very active thing, and I highly commend it. Lord, you are glorious. Lord, you are holy. Lord, I praise your name. That does something to your soul. That changes you. Why? Because it's true. And for the first time, if you do that, you're actually naming truth. You're, you're, not, you're not dealing with idols anymore. You're speaking based on scripture, true statements to the God who created you and made you and sustains you. And then he goes on and says, bring an offering and come into his courts. Chad, you want to come speak about this part for a few minutes? We are to bring offerings. Now, where does that come from in the Old Testament? From work. God blesses our work. So when you get to the very end and it says, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, the sea and the fields, what the psalmist is recognizing that we need to remember is that the God whom we worship and pray, who made heaven and earth and sustains us, brings all of our flourishing. How well I do in my business, how well I do in my hobbies or my parenting or whatever my roles are, in all these ways, it is God who is sustaining and creating these things. Are we giving him honor and glory? And are we coming in with those first fruits to him? Whether that be in the form of actual tithing or whether that be serving or offering your talents and giftings to other people. But we bring offerings in because we are made more like him when we do this. Does it, a New Testament example we talk about all the time is Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
where Paul says, renewing your mind. You know, we want our minds to become more like God. How? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So, practically, are we doing these things? Um, I, I was watching, a, this wasn't even planned, but I'm going to tell you. I was watching a Pixar documentary, and I know this about Disney too. They really want the silhouette of a character to look distinct. You know what a silhouette is? It's just if you color in a character, can I tell it's Bugs Bunny? I know that's not even Pixar or Disney. Can I tell it's Mickey Mouse or, or Wall-E or whatever? Because a really great design stands out in its, in its silhouette. Okay, here's your image. If I see a silhouette of you, will I see worship? Will you be on your knees? Will you be praising God? What will you look like? And why I say that is, ascribe to the Lord, sing a new song. These are physical bodily realities. We are engaging with God. We are getting involved in his kingdom work. We are praising him when we make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Why? Because right now, yes, I'm using the book that you all are going through. Right now, this is the, the, the ordinary thing I'm doing, but God made jelly and God made peanut butter and he made this bread and I'm able to do this right now, and I can worship him even in that action, and I'm going to give it to a child who depends on me. That is glorious. That is amazing. And that is what we're designed for. Whatever you do, you're doing it for the Lord. Are we living lives full of worship? Again, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The fish, Calvin talks about the fish are God's fish, and the field is exulting, and these trees are praising God. And, and, the, and the bride of Christ is what we are now all about, is ushering in his glory in every little corner of this universe we are involved in. So David is uh, going to do it again. He's going to do something different. You know, he went the first time with the cart, and it tipped, and Uzzah grabs it, and he's dead, and David's upset. Well, now, as I mentioned, he reads the scriptures, he studies it, but something's different. If you go to 2 Samuel uh, 6, it's a fascinating read, uh, and I've preached through it before. Um, but this time, <clears throat> David is doing something a little different. He's dancing. He's not just, like, walking. He's dancing. In fact, he's dancing so much that Michael, the daughter of Saul, who was given to David and is his wife, who doesn't like David apparently, and she's upset with him. She says, I'm trying to find the exact quote. She says, oh, how the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants and the female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She does not know what worship is. David says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Now, who are we in that story? Oh, well, I'm, I'm David, right? That's the American mindset. No, no, no. Jesus is David. See, David would walk six steps. And you know what they would do at six steps? Sacrifice an ox. Six steps. 
I'd be like, are you sure that wasn't just five? Like, this is a lot of oxes we're killing. And they would stop at that sixth step. And now we're going to bring another perfectly healthy ox and kill it. What is going on? As the ark is coming into the city, what is happening? And yet we know this is a picture of Palm Sunday. The king of glory is coming in to take his throne. David is Jesus. And every one of those bulls dying like that has to make you go, are we sure? I mean, where is this written? Is this really what worship looks like? Is this really what we're supposed to be doing? And David is dancing, and it's a picture of Jesus who looks at you and says, I will dance over you because he doesn't kill an ox. He goes to the cross. He goes up on a cross, and he's crucified, and he bleeds. And as we've read in Hebrews recently, again, Hebrews 12, and for the joy that was set before him, he scorned the shame of that cross, and he died. And you think, okay, six steps dead, six steps dead. You think that's a lot. How about killing the very Son of God? hanging on a cross, and it's because of what I have done. I, Ryan Baker, have created the sin, enough sin for that to happen. I am to blame for that, that crucifixion. Have you ever said those words in your worship? Lord Jesus, I'm to blame. Lord Jesus, my behavior took you to that cross. Or do you rescue yourself? Well, he's God. It didn't hurt. No, it hurt. It was excruciating. And if you were there and we're supposed to be there in our imaginations, it would bring you to your knees. And so part of our worship, as we see in this Psalm 96, is we realize that this new song in our mouth, this new praise we have, this new worship, all stems from the fact that we have been rescued, and we are now sons and daughters of the King once and for all. Begin to proclaim that. Sing that. Sing that song. Ascribe to the Lord. Go to the scriptures and say, these things are true. They're true for me. And bring your offering because we need the covering of the Lord. I encourage you guys, as you think about worship, to think about it this way. This is what you're designed for. There's not one moment of your day that's not to be worship. The question is just simply who? Who's the object of worship? And is it, is it God? And if so, then in praise we do what we do. And if we have struggles of like, how is this mundane thing tied to that? Then I would love, to, let's have conversations about it. But Romans 12, 1 and 2, our spiritual act of worship is offering our bodies as living sacrifices. As our minds are renewed in the gospel and we begin to see everything we do as an opportunity to glorify him. And when we do that, it brings him glory and it brings you glory and fulfillment at the same time. Nobody who's worshiping is ever going, this is boring. It's like, it's like the best of both worlds. When we're most fully who we're supposed to be, God is being glorified by what we do. I would also encourage us to think about how we come to church. That's, there's the daily stuff we do, the private worship, living our lives. But we come in here and we go through all of these steps. Bring your whole self when you come. We want you here. But this, and if not this church, any church, but pick the place you're going to worship and bring in your entire being to bear in that community. That's what, that's what you're called to do. And again, if it's not grace, I'm sad. We can have a conversation. But nobody should be like, well, I'm just going to hover. 
I'm going to just hover until the right one shows up. No, we are the bride of Christ. This is what we do. Wherever you select and God takes you, you pour in 100%. That is the gospel because of what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you have designed us for worship and you've paved the way for our worship through your son. Father, teach us to not be like David the first go-round, but like David the second time. Teach us to dance and know that you are dancing over us, and we are celebrating with you over the salvation that you have given us, that we are free, that we are sinless, that we are pure. Lord, we know that, our, that we still sin. We know we have our old man still exists. We know that the enemy still accuses. We praise you, Jesus, that even then you are already interceding on our behalf from your throne. Thank you, Jesus, that your spirit dwells in our hearts, applying all the benefits of our salvation. And thank you that at any moment and in all times we can worship you with a pure conscience and a clean heart because of what you have done, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.